Today's podcast is very special and personal to me. You are going to meet a man who I have admired for a very long time. In fact, when I first heard his story, maybe close to 10 years ago, I bought the rights to his story and I wanted to publish his story and tell it. And no publisher was interested. And it went on and on and on. And finally, a couple of years ago, I said, David, I'm doing you a great disservice by holding your story. Please, I give it back to you. Tell your story. He did. And it is now from Post Hill Press. It is one of the best stories I have heard. It is the story of a guy who grew up just wanting to be a ball player. He wanted to play so badly for the Red Sox. He had an amazing string of events that you have a better chance of winning the lottery than this happening to you. Amazing string of events of bad years, decades of just horrible stuff happening to him. And he fights through it the entire time and he fights alone, self-imposed. He didn't know what was happening to him, yet all the while he is doing a job he loves. He doesn't become a ball player. He ends up now as the groundskeeper for the Boston Red Sox. And you know his work. If you've ever seen a ball field where they've cut in the name of the team or they've made a picture on the field, it's this guy that first did it. Amazing strength. Tremendous humility. You are going to love the next hour with David Meller. This has been a long time coming. I've loved your story since 2010, I think, is when we first stumbled across each other. Um, you are uh, truly a remarkable, positive man. And quite honestly, you don't have that much reason to, if you chose, to look at your life a different way. And yet here you sit, a guy who wanted to be a pitcher for the Red Sox. That's all you dreamt of as a kid, right? Yes, sir. And here you sit, you didn't get a pitch, but as you sat down, I looked at your hands and went, oh my gosh. <laughs> and you are wearing the Boston Red Sox World Series ring. Yes, sir. I'm very, very blessed. So for people who don't know who you are, let's have them discover how you got that ring slowly. Let's start at the beginning. You're a kid. You live in the Boston area. You, Boston is your, I mean, the Red Sox are everything. And you grow up wanting to be a pitcher. I did. Uh, yes, sir. My grandfather played in 1902 in the majors. And my dream was to follow in his footsteps. Um, my dad died when I was three and my mom and two brothers helped raise me and raised me to be Red Sox fanatics. They and I just lived and breathed baseball, but especially Red Sox baseball. Yeah. So, you know, I wear, I, I don't, I don't follow sports at all, but my wife's family are Yankee fanatics. <laughs> uh -oh. And so I wear a Red Sox hat. 
just to drive everybody crazy. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's quite the rivalry. <laughs> so were you good growing up? Were you good at baseball? Uh, yes, sir. I, you know, I, I, I had the dream and the love and heart for it. And then once I got to high school, I had opportunities for scholarships. Yes, okay. sir. So you were on your way. You may not have been a pitcher but uh, for the Red Sox, but you were on your way to some sort of career in baseball, you thought. Yes, sir. You're 18. Yes, sir. What happens? Well, a uh, month after I got out of high school, we had uh, qualified for a state tournament. And my coach said, before you sign a uh, scholarship, then why don't you wait till we go to the state tournament? And if you do well, you're going to get more offers. I said, that sounds great. And so about 10 days before that tournament, I had gone to see a movie with one of my buddies. And we got out of the movie and uh, it was a beautiful sunset. And, was, and there's a saying, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Mm-hmm. I'm really superstitious. And so I thought, that's a great sign of things to come. Hmm. And so we're driving. He says, how about if we stop and get a bite to eat? And so we saw a McDonald's. And so we pulled into the parking lot and parked on the side of the, the right side of the entrance across from the door. And we got out and started walking across the parking lot. And I realized I forgot my wallet. And so he says, hey, I'm going to go ahead and go in. And I went back to the car to get my wallet and uh, picked my wallet up and closed the door and started taking a few steps toward the door. And I heard a car come off the street quickly and, and stop suddenly. I looked up and the two people in the car, the driver and the passenger, uh, had opened their doors and were changing positions. Uh, to the other person was going to drive. So I stopped and waited for them to get in. And when they got in and shut the doors, I motioned for them to go ahead and drive, drive through to get to the drive through. And they motioned for me to start walking and go ahead and go. And so I started walking and I heard them rev their engine and squeal their tires. And I had enough time to turn and I lifted uh, my left leg and put both my hands up and the car was speeding right at me and I didn't have time to move anywhere else and the car hit me threw me 20 feet in the air and I slammed into the door the brick wall right where the corner of the door jutted out and luckily I landed right in the corner I slammed into the brick wall landed in a pile at the base of the the corner of the wall And when I looked up, the car was coming at a higher rate of speed. And the car hit the metal handrail, sparks flew, and the car's metal uh, bumper pinned the handrail and the car's bumper against my knee, against the wall. And I, you know, the the engine is uh, revving and the car exhaust is, you know, I'm having a hard time breathing. And I can see the lady just staring at me over the steering wheel and I'm screaming at her to please stop, please stop. And the force of the car is still pressing uh, my knee against the wall. And, you know, by that time I can see people, you know, pressed against the glass, trying to look at me. And as time goes by pretty soon, there's a a gentleman with it's, it's dusk and there's a gentleman shortly thereafter with flash bulbs, taking pictures who later while the out, engine is still going yeah strong? shortly thereafter it turns out he was a newspaper reporter the local newspaper um police officer comes and uh tries to reassure me that it's going to be okay he gets the he puts it in park 
gets the lady out of the car, and uh, his partner is going to back the car up. And as soon as he does, mm. that's when the pain really kicked in. And I almost just passed out from the pain. It was so intense. And it was just, you know, I feared that not only was my leg crushed, that's when I really started wondering if, what am I going to do if I can't play baseball? And, you know, the, the EMTs arrived. And, you know, I, I grew up, my mom and two brothers were amazing raising me. But I didn't grow up with a lot of money, and I had a brand new pair of jeans on for a graduation gift. And I, I remember they wanted to cut my jeans off because my knee had swollen up so much they couldn't see my pants or see my knee. And it just struck me, simple thing like that, how that was going to impact my life. And then they had to take me to the emergency room. And even though I was 18, the doctors wouldn't really tell me what was going on until my mother got there. And so there was just so many things spinning in my head. What, what was wrong with my head? Not, not my head, but what was wrong with my leg? Stop. What happened with the woman? What, what, did she have a seizure? Was she doing this intentionally? What, who was the woman? She uh, said she stepped on the gas instead of the brake. The young lady who she changed drivers was just learning how to drive, didn't feel comfortable, I guess, driving through the drive-through. And so the other lady who was approximately 40 years old um, said she would drive instead. And she stepped on the gas instead of the brake and panicked and uh, hit me. So there was no ill intent? No, sir. It was just a freak accident. Uh did you ever talk to her? No, sir. Do you kind of wish you did or not? No, sir. You know, it, it, it wasn't intentional. It was, a, it was a freak thing. There was no forgiveness to give her? You know, certainly at the time I was upset. Mm -hmm. You know, it, there was a time I went through where I was kind of mad at the world. Yeah, I bet. I, you know, I, I didn't understand what was going on. I thought, you know, if... I couldn't play baseball. I didn't know for sure what I was going to do, but my dream was still to play baseball. Mm -hmm. um, that was absolutely my dream. So when you were asking the doctors, they're not telling you what's going on. Are you specifically ask, asking, can I play baseball? Can I run again? Will I, what's happening to my leg? That's what you're all focused on. Oh, yes, sir. And they won't tell you anything. They wouldn't tell me until my mother got there. And what'd they say? They said, when my mom got there, they said, you know, you're, your son's knee is definitely damaged, but he's going to need to see a knee specialist. And they gave us a doctor to see in a near, you know, bigger city in Dayton, Ohio. And did you have surgery? I ended up having to have surgery, yes, sir. How many surgeries? Um, you know, initially I had, I had surgery and uh, went up to the University of Toledo. Afterwards, um, they were still interested in me pitching. Um, and unfortunately my knee got injured up there, oh, geez. uh, six weeks into school and I had to withdraw and come down, mm. uh, for another, come back home for another surgery. All right. So now what happens in between this and the next event? Well, uh, you know, in between, you know, my desire was still to play baseball. Right. And, uh, 
So the doctor did surgery and gave me a, uh, you know, back then they put, put your leg in a cast mm-hmm. versus a knee immobilizer. Mm-hmm. And so you come out of the cast and you have to get range of motion. Mm-hmm. And then you graduate to, um, after exercises to weight lifting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they gave me a prescription to gradually start lifting weights, low weights. And so I took that to the physical therapy um, department. And they said, you know, you can start with up to five pounds, um, but uh, you need to go gradual. And so they had me sit on the side of the table. And back then, they did not have ankle weights at this facility I was at. They had tube socks filled with sand, Mm. and they would put an ace bandage around it. So they had me sit on the side of a table and do leg extensions. Mm. And uh, my leg was so weak and muscles were so atrophied, I could not do a full set my leg was just shaking mm-hmm. and that was on a Monday and so they told me to come back on Wednesday and they increased the weight um, to 15 pounds and said you know you want to play baseball again I said yes sir and uh, he said well you're gonna have to work hard and I you know basically I thought he was the doctor I'd do anything to play baseball again so I tried to do some extensions sitting on the side of the table and I just couldn't even complete a set so he said, we'll come back Friday and plan on working harder. And I went back on Friday, and instead of sitting on the side of the table, you know, he, he pushed on the side of my knee, and it was very sore. And he uh, said, you know, we're going to have you lay on your stomach and do hamstring curls. So he strapped five five-pound sandbags and a two-and-a-half-pound sandbag to the side of my leg, or my ankle. And I remember looking over my shoulder, and it looked just like a big tumor on the side of my leg. And he ace bandaged it on and, and um, you know, told me to do uh, three sets and, and, you know, tapped me on the bottom and said, you know, you, if you want to play baseball again, you have to work hard and walked out of the room and I struggled to lift it and I had my hands on the side of the table bracing myself. As I lifted it up, all the weight shifted and my hips stayed flat on the table oh. and my ankle bounced off the floor and I just screamed and screamed and... Um, a nurse and an attendant came rushing in and carefully picked my leg back up on the table. And ultimately, all the ligaments in my knee were, were not only the one, the, what was injured before, but ones that were not injured before were now um, what they called global instability, were, were all shredded. So you immediately lawyered up and sued the pants off of that <laughs> firm. So, or what, what happened next? Well, so I ended up having to have extensive surgery. And, uh, you know, that also in, uh, increased nightmares. And uh, So you were having nightmares from the first, right? From the first car coming at you. Because yes, I can't sir. imagine. So that started right away. That started the first night. That literally started the first night. And did you have them every night? I had uh, nightmares every night for 29 years. I had one to five nightmares every night. You know, when I first, when I was living at home with my mom, I I slept with the TV on. So when I would uh, yell out screaming at night and she would rush into the bedroom and say, are you okay, are you okay? I would try to blame it on the TV and say, mom, it's okay, it was just the TV. Why didn't you want to tell her? I was ashamed. I thought... I thought it was a sign of weakness at that time to ask for help. 
I didn't know what, what year was this? 1981. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know. You mean because of the nightmares? Yes, sir. I didn't know. I mean, they were all car crash nightmares. I bet they were. And they were vivid. They were lifelike, you know. And I was having flashbacks during the day. If I smelled car exhaust, if I heard revving engines, um, if uh, if I smelled McDonald's French fries, if guys brought lunch it back to the to work, um, and I smelled McDonald's French fries, that could trigger a flashback. Does it still? It does not now, no, sir. And that went on for 29 years. 29 years. So now your nightmares are getting worse. Are they the same nightmare? After, the, after you have this incident where your, your ligaments snap, you, you're, the nightmares get worse. Yes, sir. And that, that adds into the nightmares sometimes where my leg bounces off the floor and I scream. What happens next? So we, we have, you know, I had seven surgeries. I walked on crutches for two and a half years and walked with a cane for 10 months over those first basically three and a half years. And you knew your baseball days were over. So after that, after that uh, injury in the physical therapy department, I came out of surgery and I was in the most pain I had been in after any surgery. And the doctor came to see me after uh, in recovery. And I said, Doc... Uh, how soon can I play baseball again? And he said, David, you won't play baseball again. And he says, you'll be lucky if you walk normal again. And he did quotation fingers when he said the word normal. And tears just started pouring down my face. I, I was furious at the physical therapist. I was upset that not only was I not going to play baseball again, but I, be, I turned it into a competition. You know, that was where one base at a time started to kick in even more. That that was a goal that I turned in even the smallest to walk from here, you know, three feet away out of the, out of the hospital bed or to be able to walk to the bathroom or to be able to do one more leg raise. Um, it just became a competition that I was going to walk normal again. When you just told me about what the doctor said to to you, maybe I'm wrong, but it looked like your your eyes welled up still. It's still painful, isn't yes, it? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But I'm proud of of what I've achieved since. Yeah. But absolutely, it still hurts. So he tells you you are not going to play baseball. You don't want to accept it, and you start working at least did you accept the baseball part of it and you were just working to walk normal again i accepted the baseball part i was bitter i was really bitter and still having nightmares oh absolutely have nightmares and flashbacks nightmares and flashbacks nightmares every night then what happened so i was in physical therapy and you know um my mother was the assistant pastor at our church and, you know, uh, she was working, and fortunately, um, some uh, retired uh, gentlemen and, and ladies from our church would, would drive us, drive me to physical therapy. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't always the nicest patient at physical therapy. And I would, I would do my work, but I didn't interact with the physical therapist. I didn't interact with the people around me. Were you mad at God, too, or did you hold on to that? You know, I think at times I was. Yes, sir. I was. I'm embarrassed to say I was. 
And, you know, I just, I was mad at myself. You know, I, I, there was times I needed to, you know, thankfully counseling taught me to love myself again. But why were you mad? I mean, I can understand, I can understand your anger at the woman who first hit you. I can understand the anger at the doctor or the physical therapist and the situation. But why were you mad at you? Because of my mood swings. I wasn't, I wasn't treating my mom as nice as I should. I would, be, I would be short with people, and then I'd be upset that I, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have been short, or I should have been polite. You know, my Did mother, you express that regret at all? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, but then I uh, never felt like I expressed it enough. Right. And then, you know, my, my, my mom and two brothers stressed to me, you know, to find a career that I'd love to do because so many people don't love their jobs. And they said, you know, David, you're really lucky. You know, before, before when I thought I'd go to college, that I'd play baseball, hopefully get drafted, that I'd study some kind of business. And I didn't even know what business meant. Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought I'd study business. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, you're lucky, David. You have time now to find a career that you truly love. Find a passion of what you want to do. And... I had seen the good side of physical therapy, and obviously I had seen the other side where when it's not done with compassion and properly, people get hurt. So initially I thought, well, maybe I'll be a physical therapist. And when I uh, got the okay after those seven surgeries to go away to college, I thought I would go to Ohio State and go into physical therapy department. And that program was full. And I had already missed basically two years of school so I realized I, I didn't want to wait another year mm-hmm. to continue my education. So I thought, what do I really, really love? And I thought I'd find a new career. And I realized I wanted to be outside. I grew up taking care of people's lawns. Science was a subject I enjoyed in school, and I loved baseball. I thought someone has to be a major league groundskeeper. And my brother lived in Milwaukee at the time, and told me if I could get a job with the Milwaukee Brewers, I could live with him to save money. So I reached out to the Brewers with many, many, many letters and lots of phone calls and kind of became that squeaky wheel. And they finally gave me an opportunity 35 years ago and said, we'll give you an opportunity to be just on our day of game uh, staff. I said, gosh, that'd be incredible. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's how so did you go to osu yes sir i went to ohio state and what'd you take uh so i had uh, two majors one's landscape horticulture and one is agronomy which is soil science and turf grass management okay which comes in very handy later in your life yes sir um, so you are i mean if, if people don't know you they do know your work your act, your work is actually very. I do, I'm not a baseball fan. I know your work. I've seen your work, and I've seen it and gone. That is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Thank you. Um, so you're very close to your brother. Yes, sir. And you're living with him. And tell me about your relationship with him. You know, both my brothers were are amazing. Amazing. They they helped raise me. And my brother Terry, uh, seven years older than me. And, uh, you know, he's not only my brother, he's my mentor, my best friend. 
he's my father figure in many ways. You know, he taught me about life. He taught me how to mow grass, how to play baseball. He taught me how to be an adult, how to treat people with proper manners, how to treat women. He, uh, he taught me so much about life. And so when he gave me the opportunity to go live with him, it was, it was, it was an incredible experience. You know, best friends and mentorship, and mm-hmm. it was just an incredible, incredible. So you're, you're working there now, the Brewers. You're only doing one day a week. Whenever there's a game. Whenever yes, there's a game. Yes, sir. One, one game. Um, uh, and how do you grow that? So two weeks after uh, I start there, one of the uh, guys on the crew who's working, you know, 60, 80 hours a week finds another job. And the supervisor with the Brewers say, hey, how would you like to work his, his shift, his hours? It's like, oh, my gosh, that's incredible. <laughs> And so, you know, I, I went from, you know, hardly any hours to, mm-hmm. you know, working from showing up at six, seven in the morning till midnight. And, and who was, who was your mentor there at the beer, uh, at the brewers? So there were two gentlemen. One was named Harry Gill and one uh, was named Gary Vandenberg and Gary and I became dear, dear friends. And so you're working, you're working for the brewers. Yes, sir. Things are going well. Yes, sir. Um, and then, well, so after I graduated from Ohio state, the brewers created a position for me and I started full time and, uh, we were really, my, my wife and I enjoyed Milwaukee. We had two daughters and life was going really well. And in October of 1995, um, we had an opportunity to resod the field. And so we'd taken all the sod off the field. And uh, uh, behind the bleachers uh, at, in the outfield, there were some offices. And so the next day we were going to have semis and forklifts. And so I spoke to the people in the office and I said, you know, please don't have your cars behind here because in the off season they would park right outside their office door. I said, we'll have semis and forklifts here today, tomorrow. So please don't have your cars there so they're not in the way. And they said, you're no problem. So the following morning we're waiting for the sod to get delivered and I was out in left field raking around an irrigation head and we had big double field gates uh, behind the left fielder on the warning track. And I heard a car and I was certainly uh, very hyper aware of car noises. Uh-huh. And I thought that's odd that there's a car, especially inside the park. And so I turned and there was a car coming from behind the bleachers toward the field. And so I ran over to where the warning track and the open gate were, and I put my hands up and uh, yelled for this lady to stop. Oh, hang on. You've got a car in your proximity. You have flashbacks. You're, you're having all kinds of problems. And yet you're trying to stop this woman, which had to feel familiar again. Sir. How much... What was happen? What part of you took over here of protecting the field, or protecting yourself? How did you manage those few seconds? You know, there were a couple of my coworkers on the field. I didn't want them to get hurt. The field had just been graded. I didn't want the field to get damaged. I just thought it was my responsibility to stop the car, and I thought she would stop. I, I didn't know why she was there. 
So I just thought when I put my hands up and yelled, I just thought she would stop. And it became evident when I put my hands up and, you know, I, I yelled, stop. And then she kept coming. I screamed, stop. She stepped on the gas. That had a, That's your worst nightmare? Yes, sir. And I had enough time to, once again, to I tried to turn sideways, lift my left leg, and she hit me. And I hit the windshield, and Ugh. I landed uh, basically in a pile right at the base of the outfield wall, right at the, where the gate was. So you're back against the wall again. Yes, sir. In a heap. Yes, sir. Hit by a woman who wouldn't stop the car. Yes, sir. Then what happened? She went speeding. She turned to the right a little bit and went speeding down the warning track and followed the curve of the warning track and got behind home plate. And she was going so fast that it it, uh, drifted her rooster tailed track material uh, about 10 rows up into the stands. Oh, my God. She started doing a full lap around the track. And a couple of my coworkers came running over and said, David, are you okay? What can we do? How can we help? And I said, please call 911. And they, we, behind the bleachers, we had two big steel delivery uh, security gates. Right. And uh, I said, please close those up so she can't get away. And as I was laying on the track, she made a full lap and she was hugging the edge of the edge of the grass. And as she got closer to me, instead of hugging the edge of the grass, she starts veering away and aiming right at me. Oh my! And I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. This is it. She's literally just going to run me completely over. I mean, I was on the ground. I couldn't move. And at the last minute, she turns the car and swerves to miss me and slams on the brakes. And she sits up and starts excessively waving at me. Like she's sitting up, like her head's touching the roof of the car. And she's just excessively waving and waving and waving at me. And my heart's in my throat. My, my ears are ringing. You know, my, my pulse is racing. And then she sits down and peels out and goes through the gate and covers me in track material. And I'm just trying to gather my thoughts, thinking, what just happened? You know, I'm thankful she didn't hit me. And shortly thereafter, I can hear her screaming cuss words. And not just one cuss word, I mean, every cuss word I've ever heard at the top of her lungs, she's just screaming cuss words. And so I roll over and pull myself up against the wall pad and limp out behind the bleachers. And she's out of her car and she's dressed in a business suit and a trench coat. And the, you know, there was a, a wooden security gate that is splintered all over the uh, orange and white wooden splintered uh, security gate that's all over the ground. And she's out of her car screaming cuss words at the uh, security guard to let her out. And every once in a while, her eyes would roll up in the, in the air and in her head and, and she'd just mumble. And then she'd just start screaming. She was nuts. She was having a mental episode and I noticed her car was still running. And so I thought I better take her keys out or she's going to hurt someone else. 
And so I went over and turned, re reached in and turned her car off. And she starts charging right at me. And she gets right in my face and she's spitting at me and, and just screaming every cuss word you could ever hear and saying, give me my keys, give me my keys. And I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't do that. And she kind of pushed me and got in the car and slammed the doors. And shortly thereafter, the deputies arrived. And I knew the deputies from doing security at the ballpark. And they asked what happened. And I, I told them. And they told her to get out of the car. And she wouldn't. So I gave them the, the keys. And they unlocked the door. And she grabbed an ink pen out of the, count, the car council, console and tried to stab them. And so they got her out of the car and cuffed her. And it was a beautiful kind of Indian summer day. You know, just a beautiful fall day. And they had a couple squad cars there. And they put her in the back of her squad car in the back seat. And they opened the back window about that much. And they said, David, before you go to the hospital, do you mind filling out this re police report while it's still fresh in your mind? And there was another squad car nearby. And so I started filling it out on the back of the trunk. And she screams at the deputies some cuss words. And they went over to ask her why she was there. And she said she was there to do a stunt for a movie. And if it didn't work, she was supposed to kill herself. Mm -hmm. So this is on a Thursday. So because she said that, they took her to the county mental hospital. And so I go to the hospital and saw my, my knee surgeon. And, and on Sunday night, I got a phone call from, um, from an attorney. And they said, we would like you to come testify tomorrow against her. Otherwise, she's going to be let go. And I said, well, if she's this unstable, I don't, I don't want to be the only person testifying. And they said, no, there'll be other people there. If you could please come to the hospital, we would appreciate it. So I went to the hospital and there was a regular courtroom, just like you see on TV in the hospital. And mm -hmm. uh, her attorney's there. She's in her room in a straitjacket and waived her rights to appear in person. So the, I testified, the police officer testified, and a doctor testified that she had a past history of mental illness. In 1991, she was arrested in uh, Florida for stalking Julio Iglesias. 1993, she was arrested on international charges, threatening the Queen of England, demanding to be adopted, or she was going to hurt the Queen. The night before she did this at County Stadium, she tried to assault Oprah, but uh, she got away. But Oprah's security team got a picture of her and her license plate. Um, well, you're in good company, yeah, Oprah there you and the go. Queen. How about that? Yeah. And so the judge said, well, we can only keep her for... Uh, 72 more hours till we have another hearing and so i went back on wednesday at their request and she's there this time and she's on her fifth attorney since monday and she's at at her table with her attorney and she just stares at me the whole time just giving me you know the the dirty look and so i testify the doctor testifies the police officer testifies and the judge says well we can keep her for six months or until we find a medicine that works. And he puts the gavel down, and she jumps up and starts cussing out the judge. You know, don't tell me what to do. I know what medicine to take. And her attorney says, you know, settle down. This isn't the way to act. And she says, you shut the bleep up. You work for me. And then she turned and started shaking her hand violently at me and lunging at me. 
And she says, I want to know, did I come within one foot, two foot, or three foot of hitting you? Because I always miss it one foot. And the judge said, you know, clear the courtroom and subdue her. And they were subduing her when I left. And because of her rights as a mental patient in the state of Wisconsin at that time, all they could do is sign her up for a retest. And she got to pick the date and the time of the test. And the doctor said if she took her medicine in the morning, she would be able to pass the test in the afternoon. So where is she now? Um, she lives uh, still in Milwaukee. So now you have nightmares of two car crashes. Sir. Flashbacks. Yes, sir. Now it's happened at the ballpark. So now the ballpark is fused with that. Yes, sir. Um, and a crazy woman who is out and you're always looking over your shoulder. Absolutely. What are you doing mentally? Exhausted. You know, I wasn't sleeping from physical pain. Emotional pain was just dominating my life. And I was looking over my shoulder for my family. It was exhausting. You were married? Yes, sir. Do you share this with your wife? No, sir. I, my wife's my best friend. Absolutely my best friend. And, you know, before we were married, before I asked her to marry me before we were married before each one of our daughters were born i would rehearse in the car out loud trying to find the right words to describe all the turmoil in my life and the demons of my nightmares and the pain physical and emotional how did she not know about the nightmares you covered she it did. with your mom she did what she did you did. say to her i I'd blame it on the TV. There, there were nights, Mr. Beck, when I, I would sweat so profusely, I would have to get up and change the sheets in the middle of the night. She knew something was up. She dealt with my mood swings. She dealt with me, my withdrawal from the family where I just didn't want to be together. She dealt with times of, after dinner, I would go to the basement and drink beers. In fact, in 2006, she had uh, come to the basement and said, you know, honey, the girls and I wish you would stop drinking. You come down here and you're taking valuable time away from us and you're not the same when you drink. And that was like a lightning bolt to my heart. I thought in my own mind, I thought by drinking, I didn't drink every night and I never drank and drove and I didn't mix it with medicine, but I thought if... In my own mind at that time, if I slept better, it was a vicious cycle. If I slept better, hopefully I'd be a better dad and a husband the next day because I wouldn't be as moody. But now I know that's a, that form of self-medication. But luckily that night I stopped drinking and I haven't had a drink since. But she knew about the nightmares. But I was scared if I didn't describe things correctly that she'd leave me. I didn't give her credit for the incredible lady she is. Why would she leave you? What, I mean, it, I, I, I've been here, so I understand. It, it is a mental illness. That it, it. I mean, when you started in on the drinking and she came down, I know I used to truly believe when I would drink, I would be a better father. I used to believe that. It's a total lie, but you, right. you get so spun upside down. You do. Um, what was your logic of why she was going to leave you? Because I thought, I thought I had uh, 
thought I'd been able to put up a front that I was a better person than I than I was. I thought I was able to be better. That that she didn't know how much pain I was in emotionally, mm. how much pain I was in physically. I thought it was a sign of weakness to ask for help. How did you not get addicted to drugs? I, I'm so careful, and, and I would I would try. I mean, I, I was so careful in what medicine I would take. You know, I you didn't. I just never took any more than what the doctor t- mm-hmm. told me. I was paranoid of it. Mm-hmm. And I never drank and did medicine at the same time. In fact, I wouldn't even drink the day after I took medicine because I was so scared that if I had some bad reaction, it might kill me. And I grew up without a dad and I didn't want to do that to my daughters. Well, okay. So what happens next? What happens next? Is when the 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 accident at the stadium just really turned turned my pain upside down it it increased my nightmares and my physical pain to another level it it i didn't know my pain could be that bad and i just i couldn't bend and it got to the point where i saw the team doctor and he said you need to talk to a doctor about a knee replacement and I was 36 years old and so I went to see the knee replacement doctor and he said look now this was 1995 as really early on and he said look most people that do knee replacements are 65 75 years old and with the current technology we can do two knee replacements before we have to fuse your leg straight says live with it live with it and I said, problem is, I'm missing my, my kid's life. And I'd rather, I'm not able to be the dad that I want to be. And, and I wasn't even telling anybody about the mental anguish and emotional pain I was in. And the physical pain, I mean, the kids would say, hey, can we go do something? And I, I didn't want to get off the sofa. I didn't want to get out of bed. Like I'd come home from work and not want to do anything. And my philosophy was I would have a knee replacement. And if it helped me, you know, over the next 10, 15 years, be more active so that I could be a better husband and a better dad to be active with them, that in 20 years, if I had to have my knee fused, at least I had time to interact with my kids while they were young. And so I went to see the doc and said, hey, I'd rather be a better dad now. And he said, well, then let's do this. But at that time, I, had, I think I had already had 17 knee surgeries. And they were big zippers, basically, on both sides of my knee. And most times when they do a knee replacement, they go right up the middle of your knee. But he said he couldn't do that because of the amount of scars on both sides of my knee. He thought all the skin would die. Hmm. So he extended the medial side of the scar that I had and did the knee replacement that way. And they back then they would put you your knee in a, a passive machine that would move your knee for you so you didn't get scar tissue. And unfortunately, 
probably about day five, my knees swelled up the size literally of a basketball. And it, it would not move in the machine. So I had to go back and see the doctor. And he said, you know, normally we don't put a needle in a knee replacement joint because of risk of infection. But I've never seen a knee swell this bad. He says, I'm going to have to try to drain it. Or, you know, we're going to have bigger problems. And the blood had already coagulated and there was nothing to drain. And he hit the side of the kneecap and it felt like my knee was going to, you know, it, it was, the pain was excruciating. So he said, well, let's try to get it to move more range of motion to get the, the blood to move out of there. And unfortunately, my leg just basically stopped moving. He says, well, we're going to have to do a manipulation where I put you to sleep and physically rip that scar tissue out of there. Oh, my God. And he said, you know, I'll do it under a, a live x-ray, a fluoroscope, to make sure that, you know, I don't break your thigh bone. But, you know, we've done these oh. before, and, you know, it should work. And uh, so we did, this, did the procedure, and, you know, I had, went under anesthetic and woke up to absolutely the most pain I'd been in, in my life. And you, it just keeps getting worse. And I had been in extreme pain. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was absolutely in so much pain. One night, I, uh, I talked to God and said, you know, I was okay with, if I didn't wake up, because I thought, even though I knew how hard it was growing up without a dad, and how hard, more importantly, it was on my mom not having a husband, I was in so much pain, I thought I was causing so much burden to my incredible wife, Denise, and to my girls. I thought if I passed away overnight, that they'd be better off. And then when I woke up in the morning, I was thankful that I didn't pass away. I was just filled with so much guilt that I even thought that, having known... Can I tell you something? I have... I've spent time with Billy Graham. I've spent time with the Dalai Lama. I have spent time with people that recognize are just giants. You are one of the best men I have ever met. You are truly remarkable. It, all of the things that you're talking about, I don't know, you you still tear up and you're ashamed, but you're ashamed for the wrong things you just want to be a better person. My gosh, spend some time with me. I'll tell you some things you should be ashamed of because I, I, <laughs> I was ashamed of my life. You are such a good man, such a good man. You are a, you're a hero. You really are. You really are. I'm going to say that. My, my family, they're the heroes because they didn't give up on me. They didn't give up on us. 
And they're the ones that lived through the tough times. They're the ones that deserve the credit. My wife's, she's the same. And girls, they're amazing. And when I woke up that, that morning, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was thankful I was there. You know, I, I felt blessed that, you know, God gave me another chance and, you know, gave me a chance to be a better dad and better husband. And, uh, you know, there's still a long road. You know, I, I still, every day I try to take the philosophy of one base at a time to take on that next challenge. And, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, that it was a learning opportunity. You know, that, that, <laughs> knee, mani- that knee manipulation did not work. My knee f- stiffened up again, and a week later I had to have another uh, manipulation. And woke up with even more pain. But the doctor said, you know, I came out and he said, good news is I didn't break your thigh bone. <laughs> I thought I almost did. But the better news is I think it's going to work this time because we got more movement. I felt the scar tissue ripping. I felt more movement when I, when I mm. forcibly ripped it. Oh, my gosh. And uh, it did. It worked. I mean, the pain was intense, but it worked. So you go through this, you're still having nightmares. Yes, sir. You're getting worse. Absolutely. Still haven't talked to your wife. No, sir. Uh, You miss how much work. So during my knee uh, replacement, I missed probably uh, eight weeks of work, seven weeks of work. And you go back to work. Yes, sir. What happens? I go back to work and and the the brewers are very supportive. And, uh, you know, I find that, excuse me, from the beginning, the busier I kept myself at work, the less my symptoms had time to be active. Mm -hmm. Even going back to college, the more Mm -hmm. I studied, the less downtime I had. Mm -hmm. My symptoms weren't as active. And so that was a double-edged sword. It helped my career hurt your family hurt my family which is something that i never re- never live down i always regret you know there was a time when our girls were probably five and three driving by the ballpark they were in the back seat and my wife was in the front seat and drove by the ballpark and our oldest daughter said to my youngest daughter hey look that's where dad lives because they were asleep when i got home, when i went to work and girls would come down and have lunch with me at the work and they'd come down Denise would bring them to the game and the brewers were nice enough to let them help us pregame they had their own little wheelbarrow and rake and would help us pregame and they would watch part of the game and go home and sleep asleep when I got home and 9, 10, 12 game homestands and then they'd see me for dinner and then they'd see me in the off season when did you go to when did you go to Boston? November 2000 the Red Sox called. 
Your brother's still alive? No, sir. Um, so in, uh, my brother and his wife lived on a lovely lake south of Milwaukee. And uh, he, he was like a second, uh, second dad to my girls. And he and his wife had a, were just incredible. And we would go down on the weekends and go fishing together. And mm-hmm. we had a lovely weekend uh, in that July weekend. And after that, uh, on that Sunday, we said our normal goodbyes of, I'll see you later. And gave each other a hug. And I got in the car and we, we drove home. And two days later, on Tuesday evening, my sister-in-law, Pat, called. And she's an incredible lady. And she said, Terry's gone. I said, where'd he go? She said he had passed away. And it felt like my world was crashing down around me. She said she walked in the house and Terry had a, a, a Samoyan dog. who They had a wonderful relationship, close bond. And, and um, the dog was just going crazy in the house and kind of bouncing into the windows. And Pat looked and Terry was laying out in the yard and he had had a massive heart attack. And mm. there's just so many things I wish I would have told Terry. Not only that I loved him and thanked him for his mentoring and sacrifices and his love. And he was just such an important person to me. And I got caught up living my life thinking I had time. I thought he was in good health. He smoked a little, but, you know, I thought I had time. And I just got caught up living my life thinking there's time. I've got to work today. And something we hope that people will take from the book and today's interview is I hope they'll reach out to their loved ones today and often to tell them how important they are. Learn from my mistake and don't miss their opportunity and celebrate life every day. You know, you never know when that next challenge is going to happen in your life and whether you'll miss that opportunity to tell a loved one how important they are, thank their coworkers. I mean, just two years ago, I was flying on an airplane coming back from a conference, just sitting there, and a luggage compartment door came disconnected, slammed me in the head and shoulder, I'm still dealing with severe post-concussion syndrome, dislocated my clavicle I'm dealing with. You never know when something's going to happen in your life. So it's so important to make the most of every day, especially tell your loved ones how important they are. Like, I, I never dreamed of me that Terry would pass away. Never, never, ever. And I should have known better. Our dad died when I was three. When we were three, he was, Terry was 10. He went from being a 10-year-old kid to, to, being being, a, to being a man in the house, you know, and the sacrifices he made. And, you know, I've been hit by a car multiple times and had, you know, the horrific injury and physical therapy and other things happen, and yet I just... Assumed it would always be there. Yeah, I just didn't make that time. So you get a call, choice. You get a call from the Boston Red Sox. Yes, sir. Got to be one of the better better days of your life. I oh, mean, the yeah. days that we've heard yeah. so far are pretty bleak. Oh, please! I, you know, it, it was a great day, and I think I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. Yeah. You know, 
I, I mean, I think I, you are. I, I, thank you. Yeah. I, I really do. I, I think I'm blessed. I, you know, I never would have met my wife if I didn't get by the car the first no. time. Never have two incredible daughters. You know, getting hit by a car twice in the way you did, you have a better chance of winning the lottery. I, I think that too. I played the lottery. <laughs> yeah, that's right. over a hundred million. <laughs> yeah, that's I right. Agree. Yeah. Um, so the, the dream of a child was to be on the mound at Fenway park. Yes, sir. Who calls you? Mr. Joe Mooney. He had been the groundskeeper at Fenway for 30 years. And you knew who he was, obviously. Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Admired him. Yes, sir. Yeah. He calls you. He does. And he says what? He said, David, I'm thinking about retiring, but I'll only retire if you replace me. What did that feel like? Oh, my gosh. My heart went in my throat, and uh, I just got chills. I couldn't believe it. I uh, Had you met him before? You know, he was, I when I, I yes, sir, I had. I, uh, you know, my last year at Ohio State, I sent a letter to every major league groundskeeper Asked, you know, with a resume and asking how to get my foot in the door. And, and I sent a le- letter before I even started in the major leagues um, or before I even went to Ohio State asking how to get f- my foot in the door. And I heard back from only five groundskeepers and he was one of them. Yeah. And uh, when he called, it was it was just amazing. How did he know you? I mean, how did he f- how did he know that he would only retire if you would take it? I. I I don't know how he selected me and, and why he, it, it was amazing. And the timing was ironic in that, you know, I just moved into my new office at Miller Park for the Brewers and the Cincinnati Reds had just offered me a job the week before. And the Reds were very nice. We couldn't come to terms. And I, I uh, respectfully turned the job down. And the Reds said, you know, how about if we negotiate for one more week, but we have to have an answer next Saturday. And Mr. Mooney called that, that Wednesday. And, and you knew. And, you know, I, I did not know. You know, I was very humbled. My wife said she knew. And I just wanted to make sure it was the right move for my family. Mm. And I said, Mr. Mooney, I'm incredibly humbled and truly honored. And I'd love to follow in your footsteps. But I just have to have a firm offer so I can weigh all, all the offers and decide what's best for my family. And he said, I'll have, Mr. I'll have John Buckley, who's the president of our club, call you. And the Red Sox flew me out on Friday and said, David, this is not a job interview. The job is yours if you want it. We know what uh, you can do for us. More importantly, what can we do for Denise and the girls to make this move mm. successful? And that's what Mr. Sealing and the Brewers had done for our family in Milwaukee. Mm. And that's what... Uh, Billy Bean at the A's had offered us in, in Oakland. And, you know, that's what we were looking for is a family environment. So you go, he, he mentors you a bit. Yes, sir. He was incredible. If I can be half as nice to the next groundskeeper who takes over Fenway as Mr. Mooney was to me, that would be incredible because he's, he's like a grandpa to my girls. He's just been incredible. What is it like to be that? What is it like to... You're not just, you're not on the mound. You're not famous, you know, like a pitcher would be. You're, uh, it's your ballpark. Uh, there's a lot of teamwork that goes into I know that, but you are the man responsible for it. Well, I'm very humbled to have the opportunity to follow in his footsteps and be one of the caretakers. It 
Like I say, it is, it's a lot of teamwork. I get goosebumps every day I walk out there. That is such a great thing. It, it is just, it's an incredible, incredible uh, opportunity to be behind the scenes. So how will people know you? How do I know you? Well, um, you know, uh, probably from some of the mowing patterns that you see on the grass. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? How did you, how did you, I mean, I don't even know how you do it. <laughs> well, certainly... Uh, any mower will make a pattern in the grass. Mm-hmm. The first mower was built in 1830. And instead of having wheels on the mower, in f- behind the cutting unit, it has a big drum. Mm-hmm. And so that drum bends the grass blade. Um, so a light stripe or section goes away from you and mm-hmm. a dark stripe comes toward you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like vacuuming carpet. It changes when the When did nap. people first start doing these patterns? Well, the, the, the basic pattern, mm-hmm. checkerboard and straight lines, has been around nice. always. Right. Um, the first unique pattern that I did was after a Paul McCartney concert in 1993. We had damage in the outfield that we made safe and playable from in front of the stage where the forklifts had driven, but we did not have time or the technology to resod it before the team came back. Mm-hmm. And so I asked uh, the vice president and my boss if I could do a unique pattern up on the infield grass to hopefully draw people's attention and focus to the infield instead of the, the aesthetic scar, you know, the, the dirty looking spot in the outfield. And they said, sure. You know, I was staying overnight and kind of working 40 hour shift to aerate the field. Um, and so I did this unique pattern on the infield and uh, it was amazing the feedback we got. Oh, I, I bet it was. And what the was Yankees, the first pattern? Um, it was a, we did different quadrants um, on the infield. So we had straight lines and checkerboards mm. um, in different areas instead of just using the whole infield as one canvas. And then what was the first design design? When was the first real picture? You know, we, we uh, when I went to the Red Sox, uh, I put the Red Sox logo, uh, the sock hanging socks on the infield, and we put a 100 in the outfield. It was the 100th anniversary of the team, and we made the number one uh, a baseball bat and the two zeros baseballs. And it, uh, you know, it was before social media, but the, I guess the term viral kind of happened because media and players and radio and fans really reached out and started talking about it it's amazing it's amazing thank you all right so let's get to the let's get to the redemptive part of the story um you're still in all this pain sir uh you're you're still just on the edge you still haven't talked to your wife about things uh what finally breaks well, September uh, 23rd, 2010, which happens to be my brother's birthday, which is, an, you know, I don't think is a, a coincidence. It's another lucky day. And I have an aha moment where I, I, I have acupuncture treatments for pain management. Um, before acupuncture, uh, there is a table with probably 50 magazines there. And uh, I look in the pile and I see a Smithsonian magazine. So I pick that up and I lay down on the table and the doctor puts the uh, needles in and I open the magazine and and there's an article in there about a new treatment facility for veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress. Never heard of it. And my daughter is doing an internship program 
at the Home Base Program, which is a wonderful program for veterans at uh, at Mass General Hospital mm-hmm. who are dealing with post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. So I thought I would read this article to learn about what my daughter's doing and learn about post-traumatic stress because I didn't know anything about post-traumatic stress other than I thought it was a condition that you got from war. And the first paragraph listed 12 symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And as I started reading it, chills just, I mean, waves of chills just start pouring through my fingertips, my arms, my whole body. And tears just start pouring down my face as I can actively feel feel these symptoms as they describe them I either actively have or have dealt with 10 of these 12 symptoms the only ones I don't have or have dealt with are suicide and drug use and it it scares the heck out of me but it gives me hope Yeah, it gives me hope that over the last 29 years maybe this is what I have. You hid this so well that you have a daughter who knows she she's a growing expert in this field and she doesn't go, this is my dad. You've hid it that well. She and my, she and my wife knew something was up. They definitely, you know, they tell me now that I never would have won an Oscar for my acting. <laughs> you know, they knew something was up. And... They, uh, you know, when I read that, those words, it gave me hope. I mean, it scared me because up to that point, I thought you could only get PTSD from war. Mm-hmm. I had no idea you could get it any Your other way. Your life was a war. Your life was a war zone. You, you had two women look at you from the windshield of a car and come at you. That has to screw you up. Well, it, it certainly impacted my life. And, and sadly, it, you know, it impacted my family's life. And that's something that I, I learned through counseling, that PTSD doesn't just impact the person who's dealing with it. It impacts their loved ones and people around them. You know, and that's, you know, we wrote the book to have people learn from my journey and learn from my mistakes and bring awareness to PTSD, bring awareness to how incredible life-changing service dogs are, and also bring awareness to let people know that PTSD doesn't just come from war, that it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help that I thought it was for those 29 years. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's interesting because as I think of I think of people in your position that might be watching this and they would think, well, I haven't been hit by two cars. No, it doesn't. It, it, it can come many, many ways. Yes, sir. And it is that Mary, we were talking a minute ago about how your mind just gets all screwed up and you think, okay, well, that's not me. And you avoid, you don't, you don't see the sickness that is so apparent in someone else, you don't see it in yourself. You think, well, they're different. And I, I, I think that there are, I think if we would just talk more, 
a lot of people would be a lot better. Yes, sir. I agree. So just everybody is living in their own little secret world and suffering pain and feelings that everybody is feeling. I I totally agree. I I can't thank you enough for your support and the opportunity to to discuss PTSD and the book and to help try to break that stigma. You know because. Too many people suffer in silence, and I hope people can learn from my my mistake of doing that. You know, in 2010, in January, my wife and daughter, my oldest daughter, came to me and said, "Dad, and, and if if you re- would have read a book of someone going through similar challenges, would it have inspired you? Would it have helped you during your journey?" And I said, "Absolutely, would have." And they said, "Well, why don't you write your memoir?" If it helps one person, one family, it's worth doing. And I said, okay. And at that time, I didn't. I had not been diagnosed, and people would see the scars on my knee or see me limp, and bully me or judge me. And I thought if I, if my, if I stuttered because of, of showing emotion or my. I welled up that I would be judged. I I would be ashamed. So even when I first started writing the book or putting it on an iPad, it was just kind of like a police report. I didn't show any emotion. Mm. And then when I went home and after, after I read that article, I realized that was my aha moment that I was, had the courage to go see my wife and I went home right away. I said, honey, we've got to talk. And all those things I feared she'd say, Mr. Beck, she didn't say. I should have given her credit long before for the incredible lady she is. She said, I love you. We'll get through this together. Let's call your doctor. Let's go to Mass General tomorrow. And we did. And the doctor sent me out to see a psychologist. And I walked in the next day with my hat pulled down. And, you know, sometimes in Boston, people will recognize me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what happens if somebody recognizes me and says, why are you here? Now I'm proud to be a PTSD survivor. I hope somebody recognizes me. So I can tell them it's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, I see a counselor regularly now, and if something comes up, I proactively reach out to my doctor. I mean, counseling has changed my world for the better. It's helped me be a better, better dad. It's helped me be a better husband. It's helped me be a better person. But, you know, counseling, I remember the first day I went to counseling, Mr. Beck, he, my counselor said, your symptoms are going to get worse before it gets better, before they get better. And I thought, oh my gosh. And if that happens, what am I going to do? But that night I spoke to my wife. I, you know, I told my daughter and she said, dad, it's not going to be easy, but you got to make a promise to me. You won't give up. And I promised her that and I wasn't going to break that promise. And counseling was tough. I did a, type of counseling called exposure therapy in which you write out, you desensitize each trauma 
you write out your your traumas to try to desensitize those traumas one by one and initially i literally wrote them out on paper and i would write them as i would write them i would be crying so intense that the paper would get so soaking wet that i would have to start over and i would initially write them on paper and then my wife would enter them into the computer Mm. and it was a way for her to learn about things that were going on in me and at times she would say this doesn't make sense david and i would try to explain to her the pain physical pain the emotional pain and you know my symptoms were kind of i thought of them as like a sea monster like a kraken with tentacles of different mm-hmm. different demons or different symptoms would you know as soon as one would get better another one would reach out and grab me and uh, mm-hmm. attach to me and as i would you know write this down part of it would be to try to desensitize it was the writing process and then i would read it to myself and then i would read it in front of a mirror and then i would read it to my counselor and with my permission she would record it and then in between i went for an hour on mondays and an hour and a half on fridays and in between sessions while i was working on continuing uh that trauma writing about it i would listen to what i'd been working on to desensitize that mm-hmm. and it was an intense process how long did it take you so it it took me i started um right away in september uh, right after september 23rd and it was an intense process and then february 25th uh 2011 i slept through the night for seven hours without a nightmare i felt like jumping up and down on the bed screaming hallelujah when i woke up i mean i looked at my watch it it i had not i had no nightmare i I had slept for the first time in 29 years Mm. and that was the first signal that my symptoms that therapy was really working before that you know I, i i felt sometimes that things were a little bit better my flashbacks weren't as bad during the day but that was like oh my gosh and i'm major superstitious I wanted to tell my wife as soon as she woke up, but I didn't dare because I was scared I'd jinx it. <laughs> I wanted to tell my doctor, and I didn't want to jinx it. And then I went three days in a row. And I just, as soon as my wife woke up, I, I, I just shared the news. Like, I just, I was so excited. And then as soon as 9 o'clock rolled around, I called my doctor. I mean, I was so excited. And counseling, uh, that was the breakthrough in my counseling that really started to turn the corner and show that my flashbacks started to get better. My nightmares stopped until November of 2015, and which I had two nightmares. And, you know, now I have tools to manage nightmares when they happen, from breathing techniques to meditation to reaching out to my counselor right away instead of letting things fester. Where before when I had nightmares, (laughs) 
You just bury them. I buried them and they got worse. I dwelled on them. I went, I didn't go back to sleep. If they happened, if I fell asleep at finally at 1230 and they happened at 1245, some nights I just too scared to go back to sleep. And I just ran on empty till the next night. And as sure as that sun was going to go down, it's, I knew it was, you had it wasn't a question dread, of just if I was dread the night. It was how many? Just dread going to bed. <laughs> yes, sir. How are your nightmares now? I'm not having them right now. Knock on wood. <laughs> but, you know, sooner or later, I will. Yeah. That's part of life. Yeah. But I know how to proactively and what they deal are. with them. Yes, sir. Can we talk for a minute just about dogs? Yes, sir. You and I are both uh, shepherd fans. Yes, sir. Uh, this is the first time you've traveled without your dog. Yes, sir. Um, and thank you for that. Um, but your dog is sick. But I want to I want to talk about the positive stuff. When you first got your dog, there was a connection between that dog and your brother. Yes, sir. So growing up. Um, my brother and I always had dogs mm-hmm. and, uh, and then for years, Terry would say someday after I die, I'm going to come back as your dog. And I didn't think anything of it. One, I just didn't think Terry was going to die anytime. And I just never put a connection with how that would happen. If that would happen or that it would happen. And then Terry passed away in July of 98. And I didn't have a service dog when Terry was around. And, uh, and then uh, after counseling, uh, my wife said, you know, David, I think a service dog could be another tool, another extension of your, your counseling and your healing. Would you consider getting a service dog? And before counseling... I, w- I don't think I would have gotten a service dog because I think people would have stared at me. Mm-hmm. And I would have been too sensitive. I think I would have been worried. I would have been judged, you know. And but Did after you let that stuff go, yeah. Good. Now I do. Thank God. Uh, but back then I would not have, yeah. you know, because I was getting bullied on people staring at my scars and getting, you know, when I limped and I was just paranoid. But after counseling. You know, counseling changed my world. And so we started researching service dogs. And my wife grew up with shepherds. Mm, And just... The best. That's what she said. The best. And talked about loyalty and smart. And and so we started looking into him. And we got a service dog. His name is Drago. And so he came into my life May 9th, 2014. And we took him to the vet the next day for his first checkup. And the vet ran the scanner down its back to check his microchip. And it turns out Drago has the same birthday as my brother, Terry. Mm. Isn't that incredible? Mm-hmm. And uh, Drago literally means world to me. He's an important part of my life. He goes everywhere with me. You know, he's trained not to go to the bathroom on grass. <laughs> He's on the field with me every day. And uh, how did you do that? Uh, just repetition. Just repetition. <laughs> That's funny. 
And, uh, you know, he's such an important part of my life. Yeah. I have never ended an episode this way before, but I would like to with you. Uh, First of all, thank you. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being so open. Thank you for making me want to be a better dad and a better man. You are remarkable. Thank you for just not giving up. And thank your wife and your daughters. Thank you. Please, if I may, talk to the audience for a second. The name of the book is One Base at a Time. Please share this with anyone you know. I wish this book would have been out for me and my family years before. Please read it. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 